that this is a, another tape recording being made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of the Epistle to the Hebrews. And this evening we are considering the other side of the centre, not the exhortation to go on unto perfection, but the warning that the alternative is to draw back unto perdition. And as our custom is in this meeting, to read a portion of the scriptures before we open the book, those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, we are going to read together Hebrews 12 and 13. In our study last time, we were looking at the section which occupies chapter 3 to 6, and which we've denominated by the words, on to perfection. This evening, we are looking at the balancing section, which occupies chapter 10 from verse 19 right through to chapter 12. And that has got the alternative, lest we draw back to perdition. You will find that as we go through this second section, that there will be a good many items that seem to be almost a repetition. I would just like to mention this feature, which is characteristic of certain types of scripture. In fact, I have a book at home, it's entitled Deuterograph. And the word deuterograph means things which are written a second time. And uh, a superficial, casual reading of Samuel and Kings, and then the reading of Chronicles, the person says, well, they're going over the ground again, why occupy all that space and time saying it twice? But, if, when you come across these apparent repetitions, you then read them carefully, you'll find perhaps the slightest change in the wording, or there'll be a very different context. And by putting the two together, you get not merely a repetition of truth, but a wider view, a keener, clearer understanding. And then on top of that, supposing we don't fully understand why there should be a repetition, well, you don't expect me to say, well, dear friends, as God has been pleased to write the epistle to the Hebrews through his servant Paul, and as he's gone over the ground twice, we won't bother, because that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And we shall not find we're going over the ground in any other sense except looking at this subject the same subject from another point of view which is always necessary even in the things of this life, let alone with regard to the things that belong to our peace. And the first thing that we notice, and it's the most important item, is that this one commences with the words, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. And when we come here, the first note that we put there is, let us draw near. Now that's a repetition, but is it an unnecessary repetition? Isn't it telling us, even if it says it twice over, don't forget that whether you're going on unto perfection, or whether you are seeking help and grace that you don't slip back to perdition, there's only one place you can look for strength, either to go on or to hang on. And where is that? Well, it's not in your own heart you'll find it. And it's not by a company of God's people you'll find it, but it's only where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So that's my first note to remind you, this won't be the second time I've said it, friends. I think I've said it a dozen times. But if we've got this book in front of us, I shall say it, I hope, a dozen times more. So chapter 1, verse 3, 
just very quickly. When he had by himself purged our sins, what did he do? Well, he died and he was buried and was raised again, but he doesn't say that. He says one thing. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Then, at the end of chapter 2, it says, verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And then, at the end of chapter 4, verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. And then we have in chapter 7, verse 24, that this man, because he had continued ever, has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. And that word uttermost, I've reminded you, contains the word perfection. Unto all perfection, pantelies, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And chapter 8, in case you haven't already got it, he says, I'm going to stop for a minute and sum it all up for you. And the summing up is that we have a seated priest in a heavenly sanctuary. And chapter 9 says, in verse 11, that Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And chapter 10 says, but verse 12, that this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And chapter 12 says, he ran the race in front of him and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he goes on in this one letter. Talk about repetition. Well, what a blessed repetition. Every step that's, that's, as it were, developed. He says, don't forget whether you need forgiveness, whether you need strength to help in time of need, whether you're going on and you need grace to run, whether you're slipping back and you need a hand to hold you. There it is. Why, if that was, our own, if that was the only subject we had this evening, it would be well worth the time coming, believe me, wouldn't it? But of course that's only one out of many wonderful features that we have. But keep it well in mind. Now the next thing I would like you to notice is this. In chapter 10, and we're really making a start now on our subject, it says, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. But before ever it says, let us do anything, it reminds us that we have something. This is exactly the same, you'll find that it's the same idea in chapter 4, verse 15. We, oh, verse 14, we have a great high priest. Verse 15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have something, let us therefore come. We have something, therefore let us draw near. God never exhorts us, let us go on unto perfection, number one, without telling us the basis of it, and the strength for it, and the reason for it. So here, before ever I say to you that the scripture says, let us draw near, I ought to say to you, verse 19, having, having, here's your possession, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new 
and living way. That's it. This is parallel with the words spoken to the disciples gathered round Christ when he was here on earth. In John 14, he said, I am the true and living way. Our version says, I am the way, the truth and the life. The true in John's gospel so oftentimes means something which is not merely a figure and a type. Like he said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. I am the true bread. That was a type. I'm the reality. So here in John, I am the true and living way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We often hand that over to the unsaved and preach the gospel from it, which might be all right. But it was addressed to believers on the eve of our Lord's departure. And here, this is the same feeling. We come near to God by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now then, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We can have all the other emphases now. Let us do this, let us do that. So we've got a division in our subject, which is a most important division. First of all, our standing. What we are in Christ and what Christ is to us. And then the exhortation to do something about it, which is our state. Now the state can vary, but the standing remains ever the same. The gift of life is never taken back, but the offer of a crown is conditional. You may lose it. Now the epistle to the Hebrews is particularly concerned with the reward element. And so we must keep in mind these distinctions. Well now the next thing is to realise the way in which the teaching is enforced by a series of examples. We've already noticed in chapter 3 the example is the children of Israel in the wilderness. And the wilderness experience of Israel creeps into other parts of scripture. But where it does come, have a look at the context. I'll give you one that's most obvious. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he speaks about running a race and receiving a crown and then of the possibility of being disqualified. And it immediately goes on into chapter 10 and reminds them that all our fathers passed through the Red Sea, were all baptized into Moses, they'd all eat the same spiritual meat, they'd all drink the same spiritual drink, but with many of them God was not well pleased. So in Hebrews chapter 3, he goes to the wilderness, when they murmured against God, when they tempted him, when he swore that they should not enter into his rest. And that takes you back to the Old Testament, when only Caleb and Joshua of that generation lived right through the 40 years wilderness, crossed the river Jordan and entered into that inheritance. The rest who were 20 years old and upwards died in the wilderness. So we're facing a solemn issue. And I want to make it plain that we're not facing the question of salvation. We're facing the question of what you're doing with salvation after you've received it. If we keep that in mind, we can heed these things and they are written for our learning. We are warned in chapter 5 and 6, as we were observing last time, that it is possible to lose much because you're dull of hearing. And it's possible to lose much because you're slothful. God expects that the new life that he's given us to be something that's active 
and working and fruitful. I was speaking to a lady, she keeps a little florist in Union Road, and she happens also to be a believer. And we were talking together, and we were both commiserating with one another that we're getting old. Of course, I said to her, yes, that's true enough. So many of our parts are wearing out and we don't know where to get any spare ones. But I said, you know, after all said and done, the scripture says the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And Colossians adds a thought that it is being renewed, the mind is being renewed after the image of him that created him. I said, now if that's true of you and me, if that renewal has been going on day by day, we've got something that the poor outside world hasn't got. I said, I have a feeling that mercifully any amount of unsaved people are only half awake and only half asleep and they're not quite so perturbed about the things that we see coming on the horizon. Perhaps it's a mercy that they haven't got much consciousness of it. But I said, so far as you and I are concerned, we ought every day to be getting more active, more vivid, more clear, because this pulsating life of the risen Christ working through us should accomplish this mighty miracle in us, so that the older we are in Christ, the more vivid and youthful our outlook should be. Well, that's an encouragement perhaps to us all. And so we have these examples of not being dull, of not being slothful. And then in chapter 12, we have a very, a very extraordinary one which is well for us to dwell upon. We should have to look at it again in a moment, but we just pick it out. In chapter 12, you get the man who sold his birthright. This is where it's coming right to the very knuckle bone, as it were, of the subject. The man who sold his birthright. Now, you know there are many ways in which that warning can be applied. How many have seen an element of truth and then because of circumstances, pounds, shillings and pence, or some reason or the other, they turn back. Well, that's an extreme danger. I've, I've mentioned to you before and I mentioned it again that you can often see in the shrug of the shoulders and say, well, a man must live. Same spirit creeping out. Who said a man must live? Is it better to live on in unbelief and despising God's birthright, or rather to go on and even though you suffer for it and end your days quickly here. That's the thing we've got to watch. Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. Well now, we must draw near a little bit to the actual passages before us. But before we do so, there's one other feature which is written in these chapters to give us a sort of a feeling of the way in which we may hold on to reality and not be misled by shadows. Take, for instance, the very word I've said, shadow, chapter 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image. We won't go further for a moment, but there it is. If you are following a shadow and that following of the shadow means you haven't got your eyes on the reality. Where's it going to land you? Now these Hebrews, you see, were very much addicted to that. They had been given a religion from God. A ceremonial religion given by God. A religion that was full of types and shadows. 
offerings and sacrifices, tabernacle and priesthood, incense and fasts and feasts and festival days and new moons and what not. But they could be misunderstood, they could be abused. And ultimately the prophets had to stand up to them and say, incense is an abomination to him. He cannot tolerate your fasts and feasts. Who asked you to bring all this multitude? Who told you to tread his course? Would you say, is God going back upon his own teaching? No. He says, you've made that which was a symbol and a type and a shadow as though it was the reality. All this book says it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. This book that they're reading says, all the line of priests that God himself had brought into existence they were all failures, for they were all sinful men, and they all died one after the other. The only one that matters is the ever-living priest at the right hand of God. So, let's remember that if we are going on unto perfection, perfection will never be gained by dwelling in the land of shadows. Perfection will be gained by dwelling in the land of reality, for that's where perfection is. And this has to do with our own calling as well as the epistle to the Hebrews. So we have in chapter 9, 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Now there was a tabernacle made with hands, and it was made according to the pattern, and was made at the command of God. But he says Christ has not entered into that one. They are figures of the true. He's gone into heaven itself. And so he says in chapter 12, as we were reading just now, it's one thing to remember the gift of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and the entry into that covenant relationship that God entered into with Israel with all that accompaniment of terror. So as we read there, even Moses did exceedingly quake and fear and they asked him that they may not hear it anymore, that there should be a mediator between them. Who oh, he said, don't dwell merely on the wonder of Mount Sinai for that is a covenant that kills, a covenant condemns. God has set before you something better. So chapter 12 says, but we are come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. They look very much the same, it's only an alteration of a letter. But what a difference. Instead of blackness and darkness and tempest, we have come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And here I stop for a moment to mention something which I think may be useful. It's very disconcerting in a meeting like this, isn't it? When you have a passage of scripture in front of you, for every now and again somebody has to read a rather, well, immoral sort of word. I was hoping that um, perhaps one of our friends who could run along the scriptures a bit beforehand would say, well, I'll read the word that's got the word bastard in it, you see? But it just happened to slip. But we are, we are facing realities, friends. And in this very passage that you read, you had references to immorality coming three or four times. Why? Well, those of you who were with us when we were looking through the question of the millennium will remember that the moment the New Jerusalem is brought into view, but outside are the fearful and the abominable and the unbelieving and the hormones, all that very lot and uncleanness. And Hebrews is dealing with the New Jerusalem. If you want to know the character of those who will live and reign with Christ, you read Hebrews, and those who come up to the standard of Hebrews will be among those who are the overcomers. 
Because when we read the chapter 11, where it speaks about those who had this faith, most of them died for it, or suffered for it, or lost something for it. That's the character. So don't wince at these things, because even if you do, they're going all around you, and they creep into the church, and they can trip up even God's people. For the warning is not given over and over and over again in Scripture without a reason for it. And these things may not spoil a person's hope of eternal life, but even David, the beloved of God, was guilty of adultery and murder, and yet he was the one who has given us the precious words, Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. But that doesn't give any excuse to anyone to say, Oh, well, it'll all come out in the wash. What will? You'll never have something that'll be in the wash. The crown, the glory, the reward that's attached to faithful service, doesn't come into view. That is here. So we have the New Jerusalem. Now the New Jerusalem influenced Abraham. Instead of clinging to the little possession that he got down on earth, although it was a gift of God, he was willing to be a tent dweller. I have to be careful, because sometimes I say he was content to be a tent dweller, and that would, that would be looking as I did it on purpose. He was willing to be a tent dweller. Why? Because he had in view a city which had the foundations whose builder and maker is God. So that reality, you see, is to be kept in mind if ever you're going on unto perfection. And then there is the chapter 11, which is devoted from first to last to an exposition of the faith which must characterize all those who are thus going to reach that goal. We shall have to consider this um, chapter 11 as a subject by itself. It's too vast and too big to cram in as a part of our study. But I will lift out from it the feature which I think is essential, lift it out and leave the rest of it for another time. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. When we go into the meaning of this word, I will explain to you a little bit more the reason why we can translate it today. Now faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. But we'll leave it for the moment. And it's the evidence of things not seen. Now that's the key thought. Not seen. In verse 7, By faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen. And in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. So now the view changes. They do see some things, but they're a long way off. But they see them. And isn't it remarkable? These all died in faith, not having received. Well, I met some people whose conception is faith, that if they have faith, they're going to receive everything. Well, here's an element that you've got to face. That these who had the faith did not receive. They did not receive in this life. God having reserved something better for them. So there we have the emphasis. And that is brought out in the case of Moses. Verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, or better still for Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And it says at the end of verse 27, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So there's the insistence right through this 
section that it's the thing that's far off, the thing that the human eye does not see, but the eye of faith sees and is assured. And you remember the way the Apostle himself has said it in the Epistle to the Corinthians, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen. It doesn't do that if we are always looking at the things that are seen. And so, you do well to remind yourself in chapter 12, that it says, that no chastening of the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness, and it doesn't stop there. But it's unto them who are exercised thereby. It doesn't work for you a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, unless you're looking at the things which are not seen. If you're looking at the things which are seen, and you've got this affliction, you won't be calling it light. You'll be making everybody else as miserable as you are yourself. But if if you've got your eye on him that sits at the right hand of God, you'll endure as seeing him that is invisible, and some of your friends will say, what well, isn't it remarkable the way he stands it, the way he puts up with it? Well, he's not conscious that he's putting up with it. It, 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 it lifts the burden. It, it helps you to see. Oh, it says, for the present moment, it's grievous. But oh, when that day comes. So Moses, who was evidently a man of business, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He, he realized that there were pleasures of sin, but they were transient, they were passing. And he esteemed, he put in the scales and he weighed them. The reproach for Christ, greater riches than all Tutankhamun's tomb could hold and all the rest put together. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And it says, the thing that characterized him was he endured as seeing him that is invisible. Well now we'll leave that because I'll have to go over that ground, God willing, when we meet together next time. Now we'll turn to the way in which this goes through the subject and keep in mind the balance. First of all, we've already emphasized enough possibly that both of them have got this exhortation to come boldly to the throne of grace. Having let us draw near. Whether we are going on unto perfection or whether we are slipping back, we need this self-same risen, ascended, seated Christ. Then the next is, we had in chapter 3 examples of unbelief. The unbelief of a believer, which sounds a contradiction, except every one of us know our own hearts and know full well that not one of us could ever stand in the presence of God and say, never did we have a fleeting sense of unbelief. We've had it any amount of times. And so Paul writing the second Timothy, he says if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. If we believe not sometimes, he doesn't give us up. We give him up, but he doesn't give us. No, he abides faithful. So we have now the examples of unbelief, but then you see God comes to our rescue. He doesn't give all unbelief and make us fearful and sad. He gives us a longer list in chapter 11 of those who overcame by this precious faith. He gives us all sorts of aspects of the faith. All sorts of people are brought in. The Bible ransacked for examples of those who had this faith. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. All this lot coming in. And if we can't fit in with one of them, we must be a poor specimen. 
Can't get any help from any one of these examples. And so we've got the two. Examples of unbelief in the first place, examples of faith in the other. And do you notice this? In the passage which says, go on unto perfection, he gives you the examples of those who drew back. And in the part that says, don't go back to perdition, he gives you the examples of those who went on. And that's the sort of thing God does. And that's what you miss if you won't let him speak to you twice over. We should miss all that, you see. And then look at the next. First of all, he addresses them. He says, look, you're divided into two groups. You're either babies, feeding on milk, or you're the perfect ones, that's the adult ones, the fully grown ones, who are ready to go on. Now he comes and says, wait, wait a minute now, wait a minute. You are already adults. Now I'm going to divide you into two groups, he said. What, all over again, Lord? Yes. Because those who are grown up in the faith are not all exactly the same level, are they? He said, some of you are children. That is to say, in the family, sons. Not babies, sons. But some of you have attained to the position of a firstborn son. And that's a distinction which Scripture makes. So let's look at chapter 12 for a moment again and see this distinction. First of all, you remember that he says there's something common to all family relationships. That is to say, chastening. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And there's no son that he receives that he doesn't chasten. And after he's gone through that for some time, he then speaks about another aspect. He brings forward Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And that word birthright is repeated in verse 23 when we read the church of the firstborn. When I say repeated, the only difference is the ending of the word prototokos and prototokia. Same word from two points of view. Either the birthright that gives you the firstborn's position or the firstborn's position that you've got through your birthright. And Esau despised it. Esau was one of those type of easy-going people. He was furious at first, but when Jacob at last met him, Jacob thought, oh, he's nursing this vengeance and he'd have it out on me now and he sent over presents to him. And Esau didn't bother his head. He said, oh, I'm glad to see you after all this time. Uh, easy-going sort, but, oh, but, in the eyes of God, he was a profane person. He despised his birthright. And that word is used in the Old Testament of Israel. They despise the pleasant land. And you know, if you throw the gift of God back, there'll be consequences arising from that. And that is what we are warned about here. So it says, there's a difference now to be drawn between sons that are all treated alike by the father and the firstborn. Or if the firstborn draws back. If the firstborn doesn't play the game. That's a very serious matter. So he says, verse 17, you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And you remember when we were looking at the earlier chapter, we had no renewal to repentance in chapter 6. And some of God's people have been very much oppressed by the idea that they could commit a sin and there was no renewal to repentance. Well, let us at least put it in its context. It hasn't got to do with some poor old soul 
who has slipped up over something and then thinks there's never any forgiveness. Oh no. It's this spirit that barters with the truth. He said, you have received the Holy Ghost. You have tasted of the, the powers of the age to come. You have had a witness that's been denied to others and if you play fast and loose with that, well, there's no renewing you to repentance. Do you know what you're doing? You're crucifying afresh the Son of God. You're putting him to an open shame. And he says to them here, that if once you take that attitude, uh, in uh, chapter 10, it says, verse 29, of how much sore a punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? You see, there's an attitude of heart and mind that a believer may entertain that is really antagonistic to the cross of Christ. So when Paul was writing to the Philippians, he warned them about those who may mislead them. He says, don't you follow them. You keep us in these examples. But I'm warning you, I'm warning you that that particular company are going on the way that leads to perdition. The very self-same word that's used in Hebrews is used in Philippians only. It's translated destruction. They're going on the road to destruction or perdition. It says their God is their belly. Well, that's not a very up-to-date term. We, we, we speak about tummies and things, but the Bible says their God is their belly. And you could have said that of Esau. For one morsel of meat. And the morsel of meat was a dish of split peas or lentils. Fancy. Bartering an inheritance. And if you see it done by Christians, and so he says, that's the thing to be watchful for. That's the thing to avoid. And then you will notice the next thing that, um, that, oh, that I was going to finish with Philippians. He says they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. Christians can be the enemy of the cross of Christ, but the cross of Christ means something. And if after having crucified you and himself to the world, the flesh and the devil, you go tampering with it and get tangled up with it, you're undoing the very thing that Christ came to accomplish. And so he says, uh, emphasizes this question of exercise. He said that the difference between a baby and a full-grown adult is that while they both have senses, they haven't got senses exercised. Well, now that you can understand that, there's no great uh, condemnation to a baby because it cannot do all the things that an adult does, you don't expect it. But the characteristic is there. They both have senses, but one has senses developed and exercised, and the other are lying dormant. Well, now he said it, it's all right for a baby to be like that. But if you go on like that year after year, for the time being, you see, you ought to be teaching others. And you're still the baby, still feeding on the milk, still unexercised. That was the reproach. Well, now he comes in chapter 12, and he says, as you remember, we've drawn attention to this just now, that the chastening which you receive at the Father's hand will only do you good if you are exercised with it. The same word comes out. And so you see, this patterning of Scripture is not some little pleasing thing. You say, well, just put up with him. He's always diddling about the beast patterns. A, B, C, C, B, A. I suppose he likes it, you know. It isn't that, friend. This is the way in which God is insisting on certain aspects of his truth. And it's a solemn thing to see it set out like that, even though I, 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 I says it as shouldn't, as the old washerwoman said. 
even though it's set out like that, friends, and you see it, you can't get away from the responsibility once having it sketched out in front of you. But those things are insisted by God. And it's been my privilege, as well as my responsibility, to try to bring these things before you, bring them home to your heart and conscience. And I hope when I speak to you, you're conscious that I'm speaking very, very much to myself. Some people wonder sometimes how it is I'm able to anticipate their problems and touch upon their delinquencies. Why, it's because I got into a tremendous lot myself, friends, you see. And so I'm not speaking from a, an exalted attitude. I'm speaking very, very much as one who goes along this pathway, needing all the day, needing every day, the consciousness that if that one of the right hand of God should fail, there's no hope for me. My salvation at the first depends upon his finished work and my persistence afterwards until the day of glory is reached depends upon the fact that he who loved me and gave himself for me now lives for me and never forgets me and is going to promise me at the end of this epistle and we might as well have it twice over that he hath said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee and the consequences as that is true I need not mind what man shall do unto thee and that puts us in another category and gives us a hope where otherwise we might be downcast. So shall we once more say that's as far as we can go this evening with this endeavour to say all over again, except I will repeat this in case somebody missed it before, that the word perdition or the word translated destruction in Philippians, the word perdition at the end of chapter 10 is given its ordinary everyday meaning in Matthew 26 when the disciples murmured and said, to what purpose is this waste? That's the ordinary basic meaning. It doesn't mean that a Christian can draw back to hell. It means a Christian, instead of being fruitful, can be just barren land that's wasted. And that is a solemn thought to think that there are some of God's people who are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, who receive the gift of life, and are the very members of the body of Christ who may be very unfruitful in their experimental life. But God forbid that we should sit back and say, well, I'm satisfied to know that my life is hid with Christ in God. And the Lord says, well, don't hide it so much that nobody can see it or would never know it was there at all. Let it be manifest a little bit by the way in which you live and your walk and your witness and your fruitfulness. For those things belong to our calling as well as to the Hebrews. The epistle to the Ephesians exhorts those who have this high calling in which we exalt to walk worthy and to be fruitful and have no association with the unfruitful works of darkness. So we bring it again to a conclusion and when we come to an end, isn't it good to know that that's just where the Lord can begin with us. We are here as a united little company. We are going to dissolve and part and go to our several homes, and there I trust we shall sit down once more and in his presence ask him to make these precious and wonderful things our own.